Welcome to The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. Today, our host, Jason Felger, welcomes two very important guests. Jump Capital's co-founder, Such Chitness, joins us today for his debut on The Jump Off Point, along with the one and only Porter Gale. Porter is a business builder, marketer, and author. Her resume includes current board director for Reddit, former CMO at Personal Capital, and former VP of Marketing at Virgin America, among dozens of other accolades. Today, she's with us to help navigate the changing world of finance and how personal this evolving industry has become. Welcome, everyone. Today, I want to quickly introduce and just say hello to Porter Gale and Such Chitness, who are our guests. Porter, welcome. Thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Such, thanks for being here. It's a momentous day for sure, for me at least. (laughs) So I want to start with a couple of really big macro trends, almost you could consider generational trends. And Porter, we've talked about this a little bit, so I'd love to get your perspective first on this. But one is we're, we're starting to see the largest international or intergenerational, excuse me, wealth transfer in history. Over 30 trillion in inheritance money is going from the boomers to millennial generation. And that's going to be passed down over the next couple of decades. But at the same time, the differences in how these generations approach conversations about money are wildly different. So you have this like really interesting flow of money and in, in not just the magnitude, but where it's going and who it's going to. And you have this very different presence and approach to how money is managed, talking about that. How do you think about those trends? And how do you think about the potential outcomes of those trends? What we've seen in the past couple of years, especially with COVID, is that a lot more people are leaning in, um, in particular, to retail investing. A lot of this has been enabled by new platforms um, and apps such as Robinhood, uh, the technology that now allows people to trade very rapidly. Uh, The thing that's interesting, though, is that there are different segments of investors. There's younger segments and older segments, uh, in particular, in one young segment that's interesting to watch is the FIRE segment. Uh, There are people that are motivated by having financial independence and retiring early. Uh, They're very budget conscious. Uh, You also see a lot of more day trader type mentality. Um, This is very interesting because what we've found is that uh, a lot of wealth is still held by older generations and millennials today hold a lot less wealth than prior generations Just to give you an example, baby boomers had 21% of all wealth at the same age as millennials, and millennials only hold 5%. So what that tells us is that there's still a lot of wealth being held by older individuals that will be passed down, uh, the kind of generational wealth transfer. Yeah, I think what's so fascinating, it's so spot on, but what's so fascinating about this is that you have these massive trends occurring with some really interesting complex behaviors over the underpinnings, right? I mean, you have a key piece, which I think is that loyalty has just become a commodity, right? Where people don't have the same attachment to uh, brands, to relationships as they did before, where you may have it with say your Morgan Stanley financial advisor back in the day to where when you're setting up a new account, it's all digital. So there's not that same kind of personalization. 
you know, similarly, I think that the friction of change, right? So you probably saw this in spades, Porter, that if you're taking a brokerage account that has money in it and moving it over, that is way more difficult than say setting up a new account to go start doing some day trading on Robinhood or the like. So that premise that you're able to kind of detether from some existing relationship, much more difficult. So when they're inheriting this money, what's going to be really interesting to see the old line of thinking and relationships and whether they detether, whether or not they move that money to their existing kind of digital form, or if it's difficult for them to kind of rip and replace, if you will. Yeah, that's right. Um, The other thing I would say is that uh, there are some groups of people that are very uh, interested in investing by uh, brand affinity. For example, uh, a lot of people are interested in investing in ESG or socially responsible investing. So there's been a big growth in ESG investing over the last couple of years. One of the things I'm curious if you're seeing, Porter, is the is a siloing of relationships, but also siloing of finance, right? The premise that I'm essentially creating my own different allocation of risk based on how I invest. So I may have money for that's really for safety, for retirement, et cetera. Money that maybe go get it, you know, like the higher risk profile, maybe in crypto, maybe in day trading on Robinhood or like accounts, and just really starting to segment the way I think about money. Are you seeing that? And are there any kind of interesting trends uh, that come from that that really enable or disable this kind of uh, experience? Yeah, you know, one trend around that is that I do think that there is a, a slice of investing that really is about gamification and the rise of cryptocurrencies. So if you look at platforms like Coinbase and Gemini, where people feel more confident about leaning into crypto and they understand how to have a wallet and how to actually make trades, we are seeing crypto uh, really now start to be more of a mainstream investment. Uh, So a lot has been happening in terms of uh, investing styles in the last couple of years. Yeah. And I'm just curious as to how does the existing industry adapt to that, right? You have this generational wealth transfer, you have these different consumption behaviors, different attributes, ESG investing and the like, like what tools, what platforms are they going to be using to kind of keep up? It seems like it's, uh, you know, it's going to be a knife fight. Um, I'd say that uh, to really understand it, you have to look at people's motivations. Are they looking for retirement funds? Are they looking for short-term wins? Or are they really being motivated by a fear of missing out and they're trying to get into the mean stock craze? And as you know, I was most recently with Personal Capital and Personal Capital was a great free platform and dashboard where you can actually aggregate all of your accounts in one place so that you can understand your net worth, you can understand your budgeting, you can understand your retirement plans. Um, But I think that There are other platforms that are being built, um, and it's important for people to find the online tools um, so that they can track and understand all of their money. So a lot of exciting things are happening. Yeah, makes sense. Maybe, you know, one thing that I, I think we've been spending a lot of time at Jump on is this, you know, kind of trend of influencers, right? Uh, You know, maybe it started even way back when, when Jim Cramer had the street and, you know, eventually, you know, was on CNBC and you just watch CNBC, 
the rotating door of of celebrities that join financial services celebrities for that matter that are kind of espousing their view you know this trend of everybody gets a voice everyone's a creator has definitely taken a full a hold in the financial services i'm just curious as to how do you think that plays out both from a transparency is it here to stay is this a fleeting moment why and why is it such a big big trend right now Yes, the influencer movement is alive and thriving, and it's very exciting. People are so thirsty for content, for education. We obviously see people looking at listening to podcasts, looking at content, looking at articles. Uh, They're turning everywhere to become more self-educated. We're in a, a time of knowledge expansion. What happens when people are uh, interested in this expansive base of content is that they also look for influencers and experts. So we like to call it the Finfluencer movement. Uh, You see micro influencers, and then you see very, very, very large scale influencers, uh, and people are turning to them. And this creator economy, these influencers can have a very robust uh, income Uh, generated off their content. And they can earn income not only from being paid for the content, uh, but and also brand partnerships, but a lot of Finfluencers also drive affiliate links for different companies. So there is a lot to be made. For example, I was just reading this morning about one Finfluencer who is very focused on YouTube and he makes $6 million alone on ad revenue off of his YouTube channel. So there is going to be a rise of more Finfluencers and content creators uh, that are helping to educate people. What I think is so interesting, it's that everybody gets a voice. Everybody's a creator. Now these creators are essentially getting the opportunity to monetize that influence. Isn't there that next step, which is that trust, that influence? needs to be validated or needs to be kind of put some guardrails on regulation. It seems like it's imminent based on everything that you see that if you're gaining, you know, kind of influence from somebody, whether it's through, you know, a TV program, through social media, through a blog post, through any medium, that at some point there's going to be some sort of, you know, guardrails or at least mechanism to understand that trust or, or, or that influence. Yeah, I think that's a a really great great question to see where we're going. The one thing that I would say is that you do need to be very cautious about where you're getting your advice, um, and you should always be uh, very thoughtful and litigious about understanding anything around investing advice. From a, a regulation standpoint, registered investment advisors, which is what personal capital is, they are very much regulated by the SEC in terms of how they spread content, what kinds of things they can say. Um, There are a lot of rules around not making promises and not uh, giving uh, people investment advice where they think there's always going to be a win. So from a company standpoint, there is a lot of regulation that does take place to make sure that content is fair and accurate and not misleading. The other thing I just would say about Finfluencers is that there's obviously mega Finfluencers. 
Uh, one survey that we ran, we found that 72% of younger generations actually look to Elon Musk for financial advice. They're watching his Twitter feed. They're looking at what crypto coins he's recommending, what companies he's retweeting, you know, what NFTs he's retweeting. And so there are certain people that have a lot of power and that are also um, helping to drive the meme stock movement. So it's it's just a changing game. It, it's the power has gone from the institutional investors and a lot of it has moved to community and retail investors. And it's an interesting time. So if you're turning to an influencer or a finfluencer, I still encourage you to find multiple sources for your investing and to always be very thorough in your investing approach. Yeah. I'm just when I, I think about it anecdotally, right? When I used to get perspective and advice and my friends would tell me about some interesting stock to invest in, you know, decades ago, it was at the water cooler and I knew them. I had a perspective of whether they had smarts on that space. Now, if you jump onto TikTok, you jump onto Instagram, you jump onto any of these platforms that exist, the measure of kind of success or the signal of trust is how many followers, right? I mean, I, I don't know how you're able to you know, have a relationship with that anonymous person. And at the same time say, you know, that's, that sounds like an interesting advice, whether they're Elon Musk, you know, that has a perspective or if it's, you know, a a random, uh, you know, influencer, you know, I'm just curious as to, is there going to be more to that, right? Like that premise that taking a screenshot that validates that you own that stock is one aspect of it, but that premise of how do you start uh, assessing the quality of that of that signal of that data. Yeah, um, well, it is a great question. Um, obviously, we're in a time where fake news or misinformation could apply to investing too. And so, I think what people have to really recognize is to uh, only invest what they're willing to lose, and that um, there is a lot of risk in retail investing. Um, And that, you know, there is all the stories of people making a lot of wealth and wealth creation, but a lot of people have also suffered and and lost money. So always try to over-educate yourself and maybe look for multiple data points instead of just quickly reacting. Obviously, the other trend that happened that was in sync at the same time as the Finfluencers was the rise of things like Robinhood. Um, where people can now invest and not have the cost per trade. And it's much faster um, in almost a gamified way. And so we just have quicker access to the markets. Again, a lot's happening. We're going to see a lot more with with crypto and the way uh, that's moving to mainstream is is really fascinating too. I'd love to have you put your marketing hat on, your marketer hat, as you've done for a number of fintech and other consumer-facing companies. In, in these trends, particularly like where finfluencers and social finance, as far as speaking to the right customer, embracing some of these trends versus maybe observing them, and just kind of the deluge of maybe decisioning you have to go through to figure out how are you reaching and talking to your end customer when there's now so much more noise and clutter in the market? In terms of of marketing, what I always encourage companies to do is to be very specific um, and understand who their customer is. 
You might even want to embark on doing a segment st segmentation study and identify three or four of your largest customer segments. Once you understand who you're trying to reach, you can figure out how to reach them in the right way and in the right channel. In terms of digital marketing, there's obviously a lot more that can be done now with social media targeting, uh, even streaming online video, because you can understand a lot about a person by the potential IP address that is being used uh, and also the, the cookies that are being tracked. So as a, a marketer, digital marketing can be very, very efficient and effective when you're a, a fintech marketer. Um, as I just mentioned, evangelists and finfluencers, there are a lot of referral programs that companies build where they will offer a financial incentive for a qualified lead coming into their funnel. So for example, Personal Capital does run affiliate program um, that is a very large segment of the leads that are coming into the company. So think about this, think about social media, think about affiliates, think about partnerships. Uh, partnership marketing is also a, a very, very interesting way to launch a company because sometimes uh, the partner brand can provide a, a really great halo uh, and give your brand more credibility when it's when it's launching and growing. So the last thing that I just would say is that the other thing that's important when you're marketing is to take a very data-driven approach. Uh, always make sure that you can track and measure what you're doing and not only look at your top of funnel metrics, but look all the way down the funnel. Are the leads that are coming in uh, are they engaging? Are they converting? Are they leads that lead to long-term relationships? All of this can be tracked in your funnel, and then you can have a robust performance marketing approach to make sure that you're always optimizing and growing your business and growing your customer relationships in the best way possible. How do you think about the Again, trying to rebuild those loyalty streams, right? Meaning I have a point solution that I'm using this financial services company for, say high yield savings, say credit card, whatever the case may be. How do you build that bond and that, you know, the marketing once you are a customer so that eventually you can expand to that next product? That seems like a, a big gap or a, an imminent gap for many of these companies. There's so many big companies that have been formed that are point solutions that clearly have ambitions to be much broader. And, and, and I anticipate that being a core tenant, which is building that loyalty and that relationship and trust so you can expand. But how do you do that as a, a marketer, as a product team? Well, I think, you know, one thing that is important is if you are trying to add to your product line to really think, are you bringing value and something that's differentiated that your customer needs? So if you went to a company with a mortgage uh, and you have that relationship, you know, and you have trust with them, making sure that the next thing that you bring to them, they actually want. Um, so how are you doing it differently? I guess the other thing I'd say is that even though there is a lot of relationship that's being built digitally, there still is that, that human touch that can happen with customer service or chat messaging and making sure that, again, you are bringing um, a great and delightful experience 
throughout a a customer life cycle, because those things make a difference. Not to keep talking about personal capital, but it is really exciting when you talk to customers and they'll tell you the little things that made um, loyalty uh, really important to them. And the same thing with Virgin America, you know, people would talk about the mood lighting or the, the phrase written on a cocktail napkin napkin. So really think about every touch point in your experience. And are you bringing uh, moments of delight uh, to your customers? A lot of what we're kind of talking about is just trust, you know, how do brands build trust? And I think, yeah, the other thing we've been touching on is just some generational or at least alluding to, or kind of like generational changes of how people talk about finances and engage in executing those kind of financial decisions. I'm kind of curious to, to go back to, is that, is that about generations? Like there's just a shifting in kind of generations have changed how they want to do that. Or, or is this just a more complete seismic shift of all consumers have kind of moved towards a different way of managing finances, a different way in engaging with those institutions. And it kind of bring us almost back to where we started off on is, is it as much generational as it is new technologies and platforms have really just shifted how all of us, regardless of age, um, of just how we are thinking about engaging with trading and wealth management and conversations around those. And from a marketer standpoint, a little a bit around customer segmentation and, and knowing your customer, but just curious if that resonates with you or as a marketer, if you think about it still like, you know, I need to speak to different customers in different ways based off the trends and what's happening. You know, I think that uh, customer segmentation is really important. And, you know, I used to always try to look at least like the five main segments that you'd have, and you will find that, you know, segment number one and number two are going to drive a lot of your business. So really understanding those core segments, but your question about, is it a seismic shift or is it generational changes? You know, I was reading um, a report by McKinsey recently that said in the next 10 years, we're going to have more technological advancements than we've had in the last 100. So we have a, we have massive change in front of us. And I think that what we need to, to really figure out in, at least in, in the fintech industry is, try to think about how that will impact us. It's, you know, our digital identity, it's privacy, it's, you know, different types of financial offerings. Just look at buy now, pay later with Affirm and Klarna and Uplift. That whole category, even though we used to have like, you know, layaway at retail stores, it has really taken off and you're seeing huge changes in the way that people buy goods and services versus the old, just the method of credit cards. And, and, and really that was an insight that credit cards have a lot of interest and it's an inefficient payment. And this might be a more elegant way for consumers. So, and also being able to understand risk and who should be given a loan. So again, I think there's, there is some generational stuff, of course, but I do think that there's just massive change coming in front of us. Um, also driven by by blockchain, of course. That's music to my ears. I certainly, when I hear about buy now, pay later, when I first heard it, I was like, isn't that what credit cards are for? And of course, obviously it's evolved into something bigger, which is that 
everybody's become a fintech company, right? Even retailers are now embedding these types of solutions to, to go after it. But let, let, maybe the, the way you ended your last you know, comment, really, I want to pull on that thread. When you think about crypto and blockchain, like hasn't the competition as well as the education curve for targeting your customers gone global, right? When I think about investing in crypto, this is not a US centric mentality or thought. You're really looking at you know, instruments from companies from all over the world, teams that are truly global, and even exchanges that are global. So how do you think about that from like a marketer's perspective to even to, to, to be able to identify who your core customer should be? So in, in terms of you know, blockchain and, and all of those changes, again, understanding what target you're going after is really important. You know, personal capital had a very, very specific target that's very different than some of the ones that we're talking about. And it was individuals that were investing, uh, you know, at least $100,000. Um, and they actually had complicated portfolios, like you said. Actually, most people have 14 accounts now. Um, so again, really defining who you're going after. But I would say that it's important to understand that individuals listening to this and, and also us we're probably the early adopters. There's still so much education that needs to happen around crypto and it's starting to evolve where it's not just the early adopters, but I think education is going to help lead the charge. And so if a company that's entering a space can be a thought leader and can help educate and, and help people understand these changes and, and why they should be potentially you know, doing sustainable investing or why they should be trying, uh, you know, a, a crypto exchange, et cetera. So positioning yourself, having that trust, um, all of those things are important. Yeah. Trust, trust as a currency certainly is going to become a, a very important facet. I think the question that I still can't get my head wrapped around and understand like how it's going to play out is if I do want to learn, where do I go for it? Is it going to be you know, TikTok? Is it going to be um, Instagram? Is it going to be CNBC? And crypto, especially, it's much more of the wild, wild west right now, right? There's just a lot more sources for information. It's a lot more decentralized, uh, pun uh, intended. And I think what's really interesting is that there is no destination for information. And I think that probably yeah. will become a big opportunity for somebody in this space. You know, one place that I saw recently, uh, I believe it was called Blockworks, and they do a lot of um, educational content around crypto and they're doing events. But I guess, you know, also asking your, your trusted friends, where do they go for information? And I would just be curious, what are you reading and what are you, um, where are you looking right now to find your insights? Because um, Jump Capital is obviously very active in this space. And so I'd like to learn from you too on what you're doing. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, maybe I'd start with, you have to be insatiably curious about the topic, right? It's just so easy to glance at crypto or blockchain and say it's so complex and just bounce away from it and believe it doesn't exist or it'll fail. And I think a lot of people do that. So breaking out your kind of knowledge base, I think in three parts. One is there's the basics. I think there's so much foundational information that exists out there. Just all you have to do is go onto the web, there's a ton of podcasts about it. And you don't really have to look that far. I mean, general media outlets, whether you're the New York Times or the like, have plenty of primers for you to learn. Everything from Bitcoin, ETH, 
blockchain, DeFi, all of the terms, understanding the, the fundamentals. Two, you know, when you look at it, there's a bunch of buckets that you can look at, but you really need to understand the incremental innovations, the disruptive technologies, some of these trends that are occurring that showcase these convergences with the existing industries. And I would argue that when you can learn a lot of this by just following a lot of the leading investors and advocates, everything from Twitter to their blog posts and just general you know, conferences and the like, I think that generally speaking, it's such a broad area, right? I mean, you're really recreating the new internet. You're recreating trusted contracts. You're recreating new capital market systems and beyond, right? So you almost have to pick a passion area once you understand the building blocks. It's a composable system. Understand the basics. Understand the different nuances of a chain and blockchain in general. And then pick an area and then just dive deep rabbit holes, they say. There's a lot going on, but... I think it's being methodical and thinking through where you find passion and where you have interest. And then maybe lastly, the third piece I'd say is, you know, this is a community-driven ecosystem. It's so easy to get immersed. When you're thinking about it, you have to just look at crypto Twitter. You have to look at Discord, Telegram, Signal. You know, you could join a DAO. There's just so many ways to listen, hear, and understand what people are thinking about, how they're seeing trends and gaps in the market. And this chatter debate is really everywhere. So I think there's a great opportunity for people to join. They just have to use new mediums that they're probably not used to using on a day-to-day basis, and then just find ways to kind of immerse themselves in this community. But it, because it's a community-based kind of environment, it's important to kind of join those forums. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I had a, a girlfriend was over this morning and we were having coffee talking just about this, about how do you learn more about crypto and where do you turn and what's the right source. I I look forward to hearing some more of your podcast to see what other people are doing. Yeah, it's one of those things that I would maybe layer on one other piece, which is it's it's certainly an investment area that we see an opportunity, which is this trust as a currency, as we've been talking about in in different ways, ways and shapes and forms, but this collaborative investing, right? This premise that you may learn from other people, whether it's from sharing insights and perspectives, but you may also just say the gap of knowledge is so wide, but I trust this person and I want to replicate their portfolio. I want to be able to kind of invest behind them. So I think there's some really interesting kind of trends around that, but that collaboration, whether it's just a discovery and learning or if it's actually doing. And in crypto, I think it's increasingly going to be, how do I simplify this for myself? because most people can't get extraordinarily deep into it. And it may be instruments like ETFs and the like, but it more likely than not may end up being that I trust these sources of information and I'm going to let them, you know, kind of guide my investment uh, approach. Yeah, I agree. Porter, you, you started to mention some of your past experiences, which are not all in financial services, Virgin and others. You're on the board of Reddit. When you're thinking about companies in fintech, in crypto that are building brand, that are thinking about their marketing efforts, how do you or where do you really look in industries and other examples to kind of port over learnings? Yeah. You know, one thing that I I have seen, Jason, is that a lot of companies uh, that are in this space are driven by founders that are product engineering, you know, kind of tech founders. And you don't often have like a brand or design founder. 
And so they'll, they'll work on product market fit and then brand and messaging is kind of an afterthought where they'll, they'll, they'll get out there and then they'll realize, oh gosh, maybe I want to up-level this. So you know, the first thing I'd say is don't um, underestimate the power of uh, succinct and clear messaging and also the visual appeal that great design can add to your brand and that people actually really, really respond to it. One thing to do is to look at successful category challengers, uh, Lyft, you know, they had a design founder on, on part of their company um, and worked really hard on design and came in after Uber. So look at category challengers. Another tip is there's a company called uh, Eat Big Fish, and they have defined the 10 archetypes of challenger brands and kind of brand positioning and figuring out um, you know, do I want to be a brand that is humorous and irreverent? Do I want to be a brand that is the, you know, the personal champion of the underdog? So kind of understanding, you know, your archetype and, and really charting a course. So being specific and intentional with your, your marketing and your branding um, can be really powerful and change your funnel dynamics and uh, your, your growth ability. It's great advice. We've touched on a, a few kind of trends that we're all excited about, but I want to specifically pose it to both of you, which is you know, kind of fully ingesting all these signals and, and things that we're seeing in the market. Yeah. Um, one area that I do think is, is going to be a very interesting one to lean into is just the whole privacy aspect. Um, we touched on that a little bit, but in finance, you know, obviously because a lot of the, the finance is being embedded in companies now and our data. We need to make sure our data is secure and you know, thinking about the metaverse, what will fintech look like in the metaverse? Will you be shopping at a virtual Gucci? So I've been thinking a lot about that. And you know, honestly, what I've been thinking about recently is what are some of the risks that we also could face culturally uh, with the shifts that are happening with Web 3.0. I have a daughter who's in college, so I've been just trying to think more about that and reading a lot about what's happening in Korea because they're a little bit ahead of us in terms of the metaverse and some of the things that are happening. So I've been thinking more, I guess, broad stroke about Web 3.0 and what that means for, for us. Yeah, I mean, I think you know there are so many interesting threads that you can pull on within fintech. There's so much innovation, but I'd maybe summarize with three trends that I think are super interesting um, as, as we see it today. You know, one is everybody talks about traditional finance and crypto or digital finance as totally separate things. And I think there's going to be an incredible wave of, of convergence, right? The traditional players entering the digital space by having crypto offerings and conversely. And so there's going to be a lot of things layered into that, the compliance layer that comes into it, the enablement of custodian kind of solutions for crypto assets and so forth. So that that bucket for me is really interesting. And obviously at Jump, we're very active on both sides. Um, and so that's a potentially a self-fulfilling prophecy that both sides accelerate with success. Uh, two for me is this rationalization of relationships, right? I just think it's it's nonsensical to think that the, I, I think you said 14 porter uh, relationships that most people have on personal capital, which happens to be very close to mine, 
um, my number is going to continue, right? Like at some point, there's a rationalization of point solutions and relationships. And so as a result, you're going to have an increasing number of them not, you know, build these out. They're going to white label and just plug and play. And eventually everybody will have broker solutions, credit card solutions, debit card solutions, and and eventually you'll you'll aggregate to one relationship. And you're seeing that with players like PayPal and others expanding beyond their core cap- uh, capability. And then for me, the third, and like we talked about it a bunch, and I think it's just, it, it's a fascinating trend. I certainly, you know, don't know where it's going to go, but this trust as a currency, this premise of collaborative investing, I think is so fascinating, right? The premise that my brother, my dad are, you know, trading stocks, certainly more frequently than I am. And I wish I had more time to do that. And would I want to invest behind what they're doing? For sure. How do you enable that? Or if somebody gives me advice on social media, how do I know that I should trust them? Um, and the premise of discovery and learning from other people and understanding, you know, where should I invest if I have an ESG kind of component? That whole element of, of being able to share advice, discover, follow, you know, replicate portfolios, I think is just a fascinating trend. And frankly, the advent of social media has really enabled. So I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to explode. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. And Porter gave some just spot on advice and perspective. So I just want to thank you. Thanks such for doing this with us. and really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Well, you guys are awesome. So thank you for inviting me today. And um, I hope to talk to you all again in the future very soon. Thank you so much for listening to this month's episode of The Jump Off Point, an original podcast by Jump Capital. If you have an idea for the show or know of someone who would make a great guest, please contact podcast at jumpcap.com.